Hi, Wojciech. Hi, Dominic. How's it going over there? Good. It's very snowy. I've been in a snowy forest for the last three days, so I'm well rested and energized. Wow, that sounds delightful and sounds like you're in a perfect position to dive into the second and final part of an autocrat's guide to destroying local media. What have you got in store for us today, Wojciech? Today, uh, we're zooming in on the legal aspect of capturing local media. And later on, we'll be hearing from some local journalists who had the personal experience of when autocratic regimes came knocking on their newsroom doors. But before we plunge into all that, it's time for a quiz. I love a quiz. I wasn't expecting this. Okay, hit me. Alrighty. So since we covered three countries in part one, Bulgaria, Hungary and Poland, I've got three questions, one for each. Ready for the challenge? Ready as I'll ever be. Fantastic. Question one. In part one, our friend and reporter, Dimitar Ganev, told us about Delian Pejewski, a notorious Bulgarian oligarch with an enormous estate, including huge media ownership. Now, according to Reporters Without Borders, what percentage of the print media does he own? Is it A, around 30%, B, approximately 55%, or C, 80%? I'm going to go big and assume it's really terrible and that he owns 80% of all the print media in Bulgaria, but I can't believe that, surely not. And that is unfortunately the right answer. (laughs) What's even worse, it's that is the official number that the Reporters Without Borders, a very respectable organization, could put in the report. Reportedly, he owns much more, and not only in print media, but also in digital media, television, news, radio. Are you ready for question two? Hit me. Okay. Victoria Scherdult, our Hungarian reporter for the story, told us about the rise and fall of Lajos Szymitska, a media magnate and Viktor Orban's ally. As you probably remember, he eventually had a huge public fight with Orban and was stripped of his media empire. Now, <laughs> what do you think he's up to now? A. He got into competitive rod fishing. <laughs> B. He put much of his money into a farming business. C. He disappeared and no one heard from him for quite some time. Ooh, I hope it's A for his sake, but I f- but I'm going to go with B. He got into farming. Great intuition, yeah. After he had this fight with Orban, he sold and probably was forced to sell all his media assets. And recently, the only article I found about him was like from February this year. And he invested almost 5 million euro in an agricultural business that used to be his small side business. And he runs it with his wife. So he seems to be doing fine. Hmm. Good for him. I wish for him that he also takes up rod fishing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so it's time for the final question. It's about Poland, obviously. When PIS, the right-wing party that ruled Poland for the last eight years, took the reins in 2015, they swiftly appointed a new chairman for the national TV channels. Who was it? A. A renowned journalist with strong right-wing views. B. A former party spin doctor. Or C, a so-called Mr. Nobody, who didn't really have a CV, but was supposed to be very, very loyal. Uh, They all sound really terrible. That's the point. Um, So, 
but I'm going to go with C, the Mr. Nobody who has no CV but supposedly is very loyal. <laughs> no, unfortunately, the guy had an immense CV. He was a former party spin doctor, actually the one who paved their way to the victory in 2015. Oh, goodness. And funny enough, a few weeks before the election, he gave an interview in that very same television and he said that he would never work for a public television because he was an active politician and he believed there should never be any state interference into what's happening in the public TV channels. Oh, the irony. Oh, God. Well, well, I didn't get that one right, but uh, I got two out of three, which I'm pretty pleased with. Thank you for this fun and very depressing quiz, Wojciech, to open the show. But I guess we better get on with the show proper and welcome back, Victoria and Dimitar. Welcome back, both. Hi, everyone. Hello. Thank you for having me. What have you got for us this week, Wojciech? So, if you have listened to episode one, you know how to use your political tools to control the media. You know how to use your money and friends. Now we'll look more into the legal aspect of it. But most importantly, we'll try to give you some hints to the best of our flawed abilities as to what you, as a citizen and a voter, can do to prevent such grim things happening back in your country. Yeah, I might actually have some of those hints necessary uh, considering the election results in uh, my home country, the Netherlands, where the far right won recently. So I'm going to go and get my notebook and some popcorn. (laughs) So shortly after the 2015 election, when law and justice took power in Poland, its members and the propagandist media began discussing a brand new topic, the repolonization of the media landscape. Repolonization, as in like making it more Polish again. Yes, making it more Polish than never. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Remember, after the communist era, a huge amount of the media in Poland had been bought up by foreign owners. Law and Justice wanted to change that. Here's Susanna Nowicka. She's a lawyer from the Helsinki Foundation for Human Rights, specializing in freedom of speech issues. The main um, issue that we have with repolonization was the fact that in 2020, a state-owned company bought Posca Press, which is the biggest editorial company that specializes in local press. The company that bought Polska Press was PKN Orlen, an oil refinery and distribution company. Why is an oil company getting involved with the media? Uh, simply because it was and remains the biggest and richest state-owned company in Poland. And at the time, it was governed by a law and justice party loyalist, Daniel Obajtek, the infamous Daniel Obajtek, I should say. Now we have to emphasize how the scheme is almost the same as the Hungarian one, but upgraded. You probably remember Lajos Simicka, the guy who bought all those outlets and became a close ally of Orban. Here's Agnes Urban, the Hungarian media expert you heard from in part one. 2015, Lajos Simicka stepped out from the system and uh, a huge conflict started between the Prime Minister and Lajos Simicka. He publicly insulted Orban after some of his top staff resigned and then things spiraled out of control between them. This conflict was one of the most serious crises during Orban's tenure. Even though Simicka eventually lost and was stripped of his media empire, his rebellion against Orban caused serious problems for the regime he'd been building. In Poland, law and justice were watching what had happened in Hungary and they learned from it. 
they decided to avoid acquiring media outlets through private individuals or companies because these can ultimately turn against you, right? Ah, yeah, of course. Instead, the party decided to get control of the media by buying up outlets through state-owned enterprises. Mm. And look, it added a significant safety valve to the whole scheme because the boss of the oil company buying up Polska Press, Daniel Obajtek, was just an appointee. If he did something unruly, he could get fired the next day and the party would look for somebody more obedient. The whole acquisition maneuver seemed pretty much bulletproof this time. Of course, that was widely criticized by NGOs, by journalists, by, but also by the ombudsman. In case you don't know, an ombudsman is a commissioner for human rights. They help citizens deal with their complaints against their governments or the public sector. Now, in 2020, when this oil company was buying a Polska Press, the national media was already completely controlled by the ruling party. It had turned them into a propaganda tool. And now, the party that had done this, via a proxy, a state-owned company that it also fully controlled, was attempting to buy 20 out of the biggest 22 regional newspapers. Ugh, you'd hope there was a legal safeguard or something that might prevent that from happening. And I hope for that too. And actually, there is something. Under EU law, all media mergers of this kind have to be looked at by some kind of competition regulator to make sure they are not concentrating too much power in the hands of one owner. In Poland, that's the Office of Consumer and Competition Protection. Snappy name. <laughs> so despite all the circumstances we've explained, the chairman of this competition office approved this acquisition without any reservations. Oh, that seems weird. Mm. And it was not the first controversial merger or acquisition approved by this authority. Here's Anna Wojcik again, the rule of law expert we heard from in part one. Its track record is not great. This competition authority cleared the acquisitions of certain businesses. Also, it greenlighted the acquisition of Lotos by Orlen. What Anna is referring to is one of the most debated mergers in the history of Poland. That same Pekka and Orlen, the biggest oil company in Poland, bought the second biggest oil company in Poland. Again, that acquisition would struggle to happen under normal circumstances. But then you have this national competition authority that is compliant, that gives decisions that you like because you put people that you like as chiefs. But then there is... Um, Unfortunately, this independent commissioner for human rights was still trying to challenge this decision. So what happens with the media outlets is that the commissioner for human rights, who was at the time independent, takes this decision to court as a last resort to stop it from happening. And the court suspends the merger and introduces a vital interim measure. Pekka and Orlen cannot change anything in the editorial boards of Polska Press. Okay, so whilst we're waiting for the court ruling, the oil company weren't allowed to order Polska Press to fire any of the journalists and replace them with more government-friendly ones, I presume. Yeah, exactly. So as you can imagine, the people in power were not happy. The representatives of Orlen and of the political party PIS, they were unhappy with interim order of the court and they say that they do not accept it. And so Pekka and Orlen, backed by the government, completely ignored what they were supposed to do, or rather not do. 
And very soon after the acquisition, they changed the head of Polska Press, of the board of Polska Press, to someone who is already known in the journalistic circles as someone whose views are right-wing and also very pro-governing uh, party. And then they just continue to change the members of the editorial board to people who are more pro-government. Ugh. So the interim measures were at least trying to hold the government in check. But in reality, that just wasn't happening. The only possible chance now was the final hearing. The final decision has completely neglected our legal uh, claims and allegations that we have presented in our uh, written opinions and statements in the procedure. That's Cezary Węgliński, the lawyer who represented the Commissioner for Human Rights Office in the proceedings. In the end, the court approved the merger and dismissed all of the commissioner's claims. Wow. The court at this point, the only institution that could have acted in defense of media freedom, said, well, it's not our job, we only investigate economic criteria, economically it looks fine, case closed. Is there any chance that the judges here weren't entirely independent in their judgment of this case? Well, there were indeed new judges put in charge of the final hearing, but it's difficult to say whether they ruled the way they did because they were told to. Let's just say that this government was pretty infamous for its takeover of the court system as well as the media. And I asked Anna Wojcik what she thinks about it, and she said that it's almost impossible to prove, but it's very likely. So was that the end of the line for the people trying to fight this media takeover? Or did they appeal the court ruling? Nope, they didn't. Between the hearings, Cesare's boss changed, his tenure was over, and the new commissioner decided to drop the plan to appeal the court's ruling. Well, it must have been hard for Cesare to come up against a brick wall like that. Yeah. He even drafted an appeal that he felt strongly about, but he was never given the chance to use it. And I think this whole story with Polska Press just underlines how our democratic systems are pretty much powerless against malevolent political parties. In a case like a ruling party attempting to do something as corrupt as control the media, there should be a mechanism that simply prevents it from happening. And there clearly wasn't. Okay, so we've established what the tools are. The political, business and legal tools that can allow a government to turn the media into a propaganda machine. But where does that leave all the people who actually worked in local media as journalists? All those local media shipwrecks? Here's one example, Erwin Gut. He's a Hungarian journalist who stopped freelancing for a local outlet after it was turned into a government mouthpiece. For me, this was a huge lesson, how power and politics can interfere with the work of journalists in Hungary. So I started looking for making a living from freelancing on an international level. And exactly the same happened in Poland with local journalists from the group acquired by the oil company, although with its own populist spin. Susanna Nowicka, the human rights lawyer who works on media freedom, explains how this works in practice. Technically, after the acquisition, not a single journalist was fired. Maybe one person out of 20 titles. But uh, 
Just after the acquisition, the new head of Polska Press, Dora Takania, she was traveling around Poland, going to different cities and talking with editors-in-chief and saying, sometimes more bluntly, sometimes less, that they are no longer welcome in the company, that this is the end of their cooperation. And the only technicality is how they, they end the cooperations. The office of Marek Twaruk, the local newspaper editor we heard from in part one, was one of the stops on the new boss's tour. Szybko przyjechał do mnie. Very quickly, a board member came to me and said she couldn't imagine working with me. Uh, she suggested I move to, to the position of deputy editor-in-chief, indicating uh, that I could stay as long as I wanted, but essentially I was supposed to step aside. Um, and of course we parted ways. No i oczywiście rozstaliśmy się. Natomiast jak się później okazało... As it later turned out, about 20 people eventually left, uh, unable to find their place in these new realities, which I think speaks well of the team, because these are people who understand that journalism does not consist of deciding every morning what pleasant matters to write about in favor of those in power and what unpleasant matters not to write about. In some cases, journalists working in this new reality have had to deal with blatant censorship. In lots of other cases, the reporters who've stayed have simply started self-censoring. For example, let's say that sometimes a journalist would write an article about VOSP, which is an organization that collects money for charity in Poland, and its head is known to be anti-government. And let's say that this article just didn't get accepted. And there was no reason given, it just was never published. Say after a fourth or fifth or sixth time something like this happens, the journalist more or less knows what he can and what he cannot write about. So the automatic reaction for some people would be to just leave a place like that. But quitting your job is not always an option. Of course, like we had cases of people who kept working for Polska Press because they did believe that this is their mission and they have to keep doing that and be as impartial as they can under the new owner, under the new editor-in-chief. I also heard stories about people, which is also understandable, that could just could not afford to lose that job. And some people, yes, uh, just internalized that censorship because they did not want to lose that job. And even if if they were not pro-government. They were doing, even anticipating orders from the editor-in-chief in order to be kept in their positions. The other problem is that autocratic regimes, having captured most of the media, know they control the narrative. Here's Anta Yuzing, the Hungarian journalist working for the local outlet, Nyugat.hu. There was a press conference. Uh, it was held by the Fidesz, you know, the government party. And we didn't get the invitation. So first, I think it was something exceptional, and later it became the the rule. This is something we struggle with a lot in the media in general in Hungary. You only get access to the ruling party's politicians when it suits them, and it rarely does. Which I guess is also true in every European country to some extent, But still, I guess it's not unusual to see a minister being forced to answer tough questions in a television interview, which I guess is never the case in Hungary. Mm, not really. Orban just stopped giving interviews at some point, explaining that he will not participate in bullfights. But in the case of the local media in Hungary, I think limited access and controlled narratives only added to the huge problems they already had. It's not only because of the situation in Hungary. Local press on a global level has several problems. One of them is funding. 
problems Erwin told us about, I think they were in a great part caused by the rise of the digital media. It transformed the market completely and changed how money flows within it. For many outlets, it meant that advertising money started going to new websites rather than print magazines and newspapers. In Bulgaria, the funding for local news outlets is not only super thin, but also its distribution is terrible. Here's how Venelina Popova, the journalist from Stara Zagora, describes things in her city. I admit that I don't have a favorite uh, outlet amongst the local media in my city. I almost don't read these outlets. The reason is that there are countless websites like this, all operating on the principle. One man, one band, one media. Somebody decides to register a website and then starts to receive funds from the mayor of the city. Is that the largest advertiser? That's absolutely correct. I'm saying the mayor, not the municipality. It is personally the mayor who distributes the money to each outlet. And then presumably these websites end up writing nice, positive things about the mayor. Of course they do. All of what we've described has made it a lot harder for people to get basic, honest information about what's happening in their societies. I'd go as far as to say that in our three countries, it's the media that controls society. Actually, it's supposed to be just the opposite. That's a very grim conclusion, but I'm sure you'll offer us some words of hope before we wrap this episode up, please. Maybe. But I think the EU needs to take more interest in this issue. And uh, they also need to act more decisively. Yeah, it is wild that the EU, supposedly a club of democracies, has let this happen. Well, the EU mostly claims that their hands are tied. Here's uh, Anna Wojcik. Uh, the EU may have an excuse because uh, very little regarding media is regulated on the EU level. That's why the EU started uh, working on the European Media Freedom Act uh, that is currently under works. It was approved by Parliament and it's now in the legislative process. And I think it's a good direction to prevent backsliding in the future. Maybe not to prevent it, but to help people to fight it from within, because if the European Media Freedom Act is enacted, then we will have this like, you know, very clear EU level provision and we can uh, lobby the EU Commission in the future to start proceedings because uh, something will be breached. On top of the hope that European safeguards will become stronger, there are several things that we can do as citizens and voters. The first and most important thing is to hold people accountable. Whenever something outrageous is happening, let's react. Let's make a fuss about it. As much as it seems naive or a super long shot, I feel like this is what, in vast part, contributed to the recent defeat of the right-wing populist party in Poland. Their propagandist media had been so widely criticized everywhere outside of their own channels that it built up this massive anger that pushed many people to protest via the ballot box. So from a Bulgarian perspective, the same applies to media ownership. We need much, much more clarity. It's uh, somewhat unthinkable that in the 21st century, in the EU, I don't actually know who controls the media in Bulgaria, since its masters have apparently sold it to a frontman. Mm. Anna Vujic argues that a malevolent government will always find a way to circumvent checks and balances. As much as we should work on improving them day in, day out, 
It all boils down to democratic culture, as she puts it. And we are the ones who pick people who define it. So I'll say that again. We need to hold those not respecting it accountable. Just like you do, Victoria and Dimitar. Yeah, it's an everyday struggle. But this is something that we will definitely win one day. This episode was reported, written and produced by Victoria Scherdult, Dimitar Ganev and me, Wojciech Oleksiak. My other duties on this one were scoring, sound design and mixing. Editing came from Adam Zalowski and Katie Lee. Editorial support came from Kat Laszlo and Dominique Kramer, who also directed recording sessions. Special thanks to all the people who spent time talking to us. Vesislava Antonova, Erwin Gut, Antal Josing, Susanna Nowicka, Venelina Popova, Dr. Anna Wojcik, Spas Spasov, Marek Twaruk, Agnes Urban, and Cezary Węgliński. Finally, none of this would have been possible without the generous funding of Journalism Fund Europe, Alliance Foundation, and of course our lovely Patreon supporters. Thank you for helping keep one of the only independent podcasts about Europe going.